Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this afternoon's event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, Beverage 2.0. It's been taking place all week and is part of a year-long programme looking at rethinking the welfare state for the 21st century and for a global context. My name is Susie Godson. I'm a psychologist and I write a sex and relationships column every week in the Times newspaper. And I'm fortunate enough to be talking to Professor Paul Dolan. Um, Paul is Professor of Behavioural Sciences here at the LSE, Director of the Masters in Behavioural Science and Head of the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science. He, the main themes of his work are developing measures of happiness and subjective well-being that can be used in policy and by individuals looking to be happier and considering ways in which the lessons from the behavioural sciences can be used to understand and change individual behaviour and to add to the evidence base in this regard. So today we're going to be talking about loneliness, relationships and well-being because loneliness has been identified as being one of the giant issues that Beveridge, had he been around today, would have been very interested in focusing on. Um, we've never been so connected, but for so many millions of people, this is the age of loneliness. Um, clearly, relationships are a massive part of the problem, but they're also probably part of the solution. And so we're also going to be talking about the welfare state and what the government could and should be doing about this. Um, the Twitter handles for any of you who are using Twitter is hashtag LSE Beverage and hashtag LSE Festivals. And if you could just make sure that your phones are switched off, that would be great. And we're going to have questions throughout. So we're going to talk about some of the subjects and then we're going to allow you to ask some questions in groups and then we'll take that through to the next subject. So we're going to start by talking about loneliness, which is our mainline topic. And we live in a society where we have, you know, amazing health care, increasing longevity, but we also have a massive issue with loneliness in old age. Um, and what kind of strategies do you think we need to put in place to deal with that? Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Um, why don't we start with a really simple question? Um, that's a really difficult one to answer. Um, <laughs> I... I actually don't know. I mean, the, 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 the short answer is that policymakers have really neglected loneliness and isolation. We have different government departments for health, for education, for housing, uh, but not for loneliness. Um, and maybe it's one of the problems is that it falls between the gaps of different departments and no one really takes full responsibility for dealing with isolation and loneliness. Um, and we, we know from a whole range of data, and, and not just in terms of happiness, but a whole range of consequences and outcomes, health, for example, that feeling isolated and lonely is a hugely detrimental effect on your health and well-being. See, probably much more than um, some other factors. It's been put equivalent to smoking, for example, in terms of its impact on life expectancy. So it's clearly an important challenge. Um, what do we do about it? Well, we obviously need to connect people more and better um, one of the things that we're going to uh, talk about necessarily, I think, as we go through today's session is marriage and relationships. And it's interesting that m a lot of the pro-social behaviours in relation to caring for elderly people and otherwise come from single people, not from married people. Um, so um, we should be thinking about these 
these issues not in isolation because actually um, single people do a huge amount for society and uh, arguably get judged uh, less well for it because they haven't married or found the one yet. Um, so I think that's part of the uh, answer. And generally trying to encourage pro-social behaviour, this is really just, just an issue of, 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 I say just an issue, it's one of many issues around getting people to do more things for other people. Um, and I have some thoughts on that, which I can very quickly share to you, with you, is that fundamentally we should actually, and I know there was a session on altruism before, is that we should be doing much more to celebrate the selfishness of pro-sociality. There's a, there's a huge amount of individual benefit that comes from helping other people. Uh, we feel good about ourselves. Uh, we might get a bit of external recognition for that as well, but we feel good about ourselves. And I think um, we, do, we do less for other people because we're not reminded of the fact that there's something in it for us. Um, and I think a lot of policy interventions could be designed around encouraging pro-sociality in ways that um, draw attention to the fact that going to visit an elderly person um, will actually make you feel good as well as them too. There are some good schemes that are kind of capitalising on that, but they're not really rolled out properly. There's one whereby you um, invest in social caring for the elderly on the basis that you put that time into a bank, and then when you get old, you get that time back in terms of free care for yourself. There's lots of imaginative ways that we could probably approach all of these problems if somebody actually took the time to sit down and think about them. Yeah, time banks are interesting. When I was um, in the Cabinet Office... uh, um, we, we were looking at time banks. They, they, they haven't worked very well. Um, in principle, they're a really good idea, right? So the idea is that you, you volunteer time and then someone volunteers time and you get those, that, that, that time used um, for uh, things that you might want whilst you also contribute to others. And what's good about time, of course, it's a very, it's a very equitable commodity in the sense that an hour of my time is worth an hour of your time. So it gets us away from market rates, right? So I might, I might need a lot more money to give an hour if it were paid for than you might. Um, so, um, so it's a very equitable pro- uh, uh, means of exchange uh, to use time. But they haven't, they, haven't really, they haven't really taken off. They've been successful in Japan much more than in the UK where perhaps there's more of a a concern for social connectedness, perhaps, where, where you know, I might, I might help someone's elderly mother or father who lives on their own, and then someone would, will help my elderly mother or father who lives somewhere else in the UK. Um, and there's that kind of exchange of time. But that, that, hasn't, that hasn't really worked that well in the UK. Do you think part of the problem is, so it's obviously we've moved away from um, a collectivist culture to an individualist culture, but also it's, it's actually about sort of physical structures. So, you know, we've got 3.4 million people over the age of 65 living alone in houses of, <clears throat> or flats. And actually, even if you look at sort of... Um, council flat communities. I remember hearing Zadie Smith, the writer, talking about growing up in North London in a council flat environment where everybody hung out together and everybody went into everybody else's flat. Mm. We've really lost that, and that becomes, you know, manifestly apparent later in life. Yeah, and there's lots of mistakes we make about our happiness too, right? I mean, what's one of the first things you do when you get wealthier is you buy a bigger house away from people and isolate yourself and exclude yourself from the communities um, that you were once part of. So um, that's clearly part of it. And also, you, many of you would have remembered um, Cameron's attempts to um, you know, uh, create the big society through, through social capital interventions. Um, a lot of that was, 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 it wasn't working because they were trying to overlay structures that didn't exist. We actually have good social networks that exist through pubs, that, ex- that exist through clubs, that could be developed further 
um, rather than sort of overlaying institutions to try to do that. Yeah, um, it's interesting because obviously the <coughs> internet seems at first glance like a, a, a really great way to kind of get, get older people online, get them using the internet. But it's the, well, the research shows that it's only good at connecting existing relationships. It doesn't help um, older people meet new people, and that needs to happen in a, a community environment. So yesterday I signed up to Senior Chatters, <laughs> which is a... You're old uh, enough. <laughs> but I just thought I'd see what it was like. Like, if I, if I was 75 and I wanted <coughs> to go online and join a you know, an elderly person's chat room, what would it be like? So I, 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 I logged in and I signed up and I ended up talking to somebody called Moore Pork in Arizona. It's <laughs> an 85-year-old bloke. And it wasn't too difficult, but it just, you know, I, I know that if I was older, I would have much, I would have found it intimidating and I would have wanted a face-to-face -face interaction over bingo or something. Um, yeah, well, the, I mean, the evidence, we've got no random, we haven't very got much very good data on randomised controlled trials that, that, that you know, um, put people into different treatment conditions to look at the effects of social media use or otherwise. But, but what correlational data there are support what we, I think we would probably intuit, which is that if you use social media as a, a vehicle for more real-world interactions, then it's good for you. And if you use it as a substitute for real-world inter, inter, interactions, then it's bad for you. So we, does anybody have any questions? At this point, they'd like to ask. They want to get on to love and marriage and sex. <laughs> Why are you talking so much about old people? Young people are very lonely too. That's true. And, and lo loneliness is, is a very subjective experience. And there's lots of issues with young people who find it really difficult to meet. And, and it's interesting what you said about... Um, using online to connect to real world. I don't think Tinder, for example, is a particularly satisfying way of make, extending your social network. Um, well, there might be a few people in the room that would disagree with that. So. <laughs> discuss, Tinder, discuss. Um, but no, it's absolutely right. And I think that the, 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 the fact that, that young people are digitally more connected um, uh, can often lead to them being more socially isolated um, so so absolutely so relationships <laughs> um, in your book happiness by design which is available for sale oh God, you can actually quote, buy happiness outside are you going to quote me back you going to quote say you um, you say that much of what we do simply comes about rather than being thought about <clears throat> and i want to know how you apply that? How does that apply to the way people choose to have relationships? Yeah, so what behavioural science teaches us, this is a bit of background, is that you, you're making tens of thousands of decisions every day. Most of those are made unconsciously and automatically without any effort or thought or consideration and sometimes without any conscious awareness. So um, the way that you uh, act is driven largely by your environment, the situations and the context within which you find yourself or place yourself um, I guess with relationships, in terms of, in terms of find, finding a partner, I mean, you mentioned Tinder. I mean, that's been a huge environmental change. I mean, previously people would date and marry and have children with someone that lived within about six blocks of their house, um, or they might meet them at work. And that was pretty much it. But now, of course, you've got a never-ending supply of people that you can swipe left or right or whichever way it is. I genuinely don't know, by the way. Um, <laughs> whichever way it is to connect. And 
And that is, from an economist's perspective, that would be good, right? Because more choice is good for us. That's, uh, we can at least choose what we would otherwise have chosen or maybe something else besides. So from standard economic theory, it's a good thing to have more choice. But psychologists have alerted us to the paradox of choice, the idea that actually having too much choice can be bad for us. So that's been shown in a number of different domains. For example, in an experiment where you give um, students a poster um, and they either... Uh, or a photograph or post or something, and, and then they can either um, choose to keep it without any condition that they can return it or have the option of giving it back a week later and changing it. Um, of course, most people would take the choice and have the option to give it back, but those people say that they're much less happy with their poster than those that are forced to keep it, right? So, so the idea that keeping choice open sometimes can, can actually be quite harmful for us. So one of the things that we might want to do in, cha- in terms of changing context is to actually start closing choices off to us. us, to us. But that's quite difficult for us to do because we think we want to keep our options open. Although there's another study that you <coughs> cite where people are given lottery numbers and then they're offered the opportunity to change their lottery numbers and they don't want to because they fear losing what they have. So it sort of works in reverse in that. Well, context matters. They're two words that students who, who I teach have, always, have, have heard me say many, many times. I mean, that's a... That's an example of being loss-averse. You would, you would really, really hate um, the fact if you had lottery tickets and those numbers came in and you'd chosen to change them. That would be, that would be incredibly painful. Um, uh, and, and so you're willing to obviously pay quite a lot to keep the ones that you were given in the first place. Um, in terms of um, uh, what I started out by saying about how, you know, we, we, we sort of take things as they come along rather than think of it. We go into relationships. We think very carefully about doing things like getting a mortgage or buying a car, but we fall in love. We don't consciously choose the people that we... We have this idea that, you know, falling in love is instinctive and it's not a conscious choice, um, which seems a bit naive, really. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Next question. Well, actually, so... Shall I, just say, shall, I just say, shall I just say a few words about love? So, um, so, there are, what, what some of the, what, so if we think of love in a, in a biological sense, in a, a physiological reaction sense, so there are clearly distinguishable two phases of love. Uh, the first phase of love is passionate love. It's when you first meet somebody, your heart races, you know, all the things, I'm not going to go into details. Um, <laughs> That is, you get the same reaction uh, if, you put, if you show them images of their loved one, of their new boyfriend or girlfriend um, in a scanner, you get the same regions activating the brain as taking cocaine. And, and actually, passionate love is a lot like cocaine, um, allegedly. So you, you kind of have this, you know, it's a craving, a desire, uh, almost an addiction. Um, you know, you kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's very good for you. Um, but actually also quite harmful as well. There's lots of uncertainty around that passion. I say, do they, do they feel the same about me as I do about them? Um, very attention-seeking. Um, and that lasts, um, if you're lucky, in the upsides of the passionate love, if, the, if you're lucky, you'll, you'll get about a year, 18 months out of that. Um, now, interestingly, if you get any more than that, then it's like a cocaine addiction. It becomes actually a pathological Relationship and stops you doing things in the relationship that you might otherwise then go on, want to go on to do, like have children and bring up children. Because if you're in, constantly in that, that passion, that love stage, all the uncertainty in the heart going all the time, it's not very conducive to bringing up children. So 
Um, it's, arguably, it's a good thing for us to then move on to the second stage of love, which is companionate love, which is, which is a stage of love that you fall into after about 18 months, which is when your, your partner becomes... Be a bit wrong to say a sibling, because that, that, um, <laughs> that would be wrong on a number of levels, but, but kind of like a, you know, a, a sort of very good brother and sister that you have said... No, that's not... Uh, anyway. <laughs> so you, a very intimate partner... Um, and um, that is then good for you to then be able to have children and bring up children. And one of the problems, one of the fundamental problems with our expectations about love and marriage and children is that, is that we expect or are expected to, and Disney films give us this in spades, to being that passion that love stays forever. And people will say things like the passion's died, as if in the relationship that's a bad thing. And actually it's entirely normal and natural and it's the course of a good relationship and I think that that our our problem is that we just have these ridiculous expectations of passion lasting Um, and we just you know um, uh, it doesn't. But sex is a massively important part of long-term relationships and without it relationships are much more likely to end so about one in ten couples live in sexless relationships and they escalate the chance of infidelity and of divorce. Um, However, I think our perceptions of how much sex we're meant to be having are distorted. So how how much sex do you think it's normal to have in a long (laughs) conversation that's out of interest? Anyone care to give it a guess? Average. Hourly. Um, (laughs) Yearly. You know, okay, so five times a week or two times a week? Two times a week. Okay. Well, for the average couple who are in a long-term relationship. <laughs> Whoever said that. So, so actually the average is three times over a period of four weeks. And that's from the NatSal study, which is the biggest UK study on. And that's the median. So obviously you've got people you've just met who are at it like <laughs> rabbits. And then you've got people who are in their 70s. But actually people who are in their 70s are in happy relationships, you know, 50% of them are still having sex. 50% men and about 37% of women who are over 70 who are in happy relationships. So although the passion dies, sex and intimacy are a fundamental connector. So it seems odd that we have so little. (laughs) And as you know from your own research, sex makes people really happy. Yes, I mean, what, what, an amazing, what an amazing scientific discovery. Um, it's, uh, it's incredible that academics at learned institutions like the LSE should make claims like sex, sex makes people happy. That's, um, that's, an incredible, that's an incredible statement, but I'm, I'm keen to hear what people think about that. But um, I just, I'll just give something on, on some gender differences that we have in some data that we've looked at by... Uh, sex by gender so um some of one of the ways in which we're particularly interested in measuring happiness is is as a flow of experience over time so you so you ask people what they're doing how they're feeling who they're with and they say how happy they are um in some data that we have and this is german data so you know you make of that what you will um but it's actually replicated from some colleagues who have done something similar in the u.s where we where basically you get people to report how happy they are when they're having sex and there's not much gender difference in the mean, a little bit. Women report a slightly higher average, but not much. But much greater variation in the reports of women than there is of men. 
So that is, I think, I think pretty interesting. Um, uh, Susie's comment when we were talking about this before was, well, men are just shit at sex. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but obviously I beg to differ. But um, the, the, what, what is interesting, I think, is that, we think, is that um, men have a desire for sex, to put it quite bluntly, it doesn't actually really matter what it's like. I'd like to advocate um, that women have the same uh, but many, but men, But women have a desire for sex, but actually the experience matters. Right? So that's why we get greater variation, is that women can have good sex, bad sex, and something in between, whereas men, just sex. <laughs> um, I, think, I think bringing, bringing it back to psychology and behavioural science, I think one of the real problems is that research tends to look at sex in isolation or relationships in isolation. And for a woman, it is experiential, so the quality of her relationship is fundamental to her, the quality of the sex she's having. You can't really look at those two things in isolation. No, you can't. We should, we should get some people to come in. But I, wh- one thing I just want to make a little rant about academic research is that we don't... You know, it, sometimes sex and relationships particularly, and the interaction, are kind of not seen as, of, as areas of serious scientific inquiry. Um, looking at the objective circumstances of someone's life, you know, poverty and income, of course, those, those things are really important, and they are really important. But relationships are fundamental to our lives, and sex is the reason that we're here. Um, uh, and so it's, it's perverse and bizarre, actually, that, that, that it would be seen as something that you didn't do proper science on. Um, and, and I think that speaks uh, quite badly to, to some of the academic discourse. So do anyway. you have a question over here? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so I'm, I'm wondering what you think about what the philosopher Alain Botton in his yeah. interpretation of Arthur Schopenhauer, he said, um, in relationships, happiness isn't part of the plan because he made a crude analogy of, well, basically, we just fall in love because of our reproductive instincts. So we just fall in love with someone's chin or someone's eyes without really any regard for their emotional mm. compatibility or whatever. So happiness is just an accident. Yeah, I mean, I think there is... So that sense of in, in, in things that we do coming about rather than being thought about would, would kind of speak to that, right? There's a, there's a physical reaction, there's a serotonin rush, there's all sorts of physio- physiological reactions going on um, about their chin or their eyes or whatever. Um, and, and that, of course, is going to be a massive drive of our behaviour. Um, but, but, and, at the same time, we are able and capable, I think, to detach ourselves to some degree from that and reflect upon it and to make decisions that maybe are um, informed by judgments as well as by emotions and reactions. Um, but by accepting the fact that we are driven by those emotions as well. And I think that, that, that again, too much of the discussion has been about either or. You know, right? you know, should we step back and reflect and be these, be these creatures of reason? Uh, well, sometimes. Um, should we be these emotionally driven, intuitive animals? Well, sometimes. Um, and, and the interesting question then is the context and environments within which those two species um, should be given prominence. Which pre-established behaviors are more represented in like cybernetic sex? So, like when people go on Tinder or they use uh, like cam networks? I don't know. What, <laughs> um, do you know? Uh, just say the question again. So, like, what goes off in the brain? Can't hear. What it goes it? off in the brain? When we use something like, like a can website, or when we masturbate to porn, and how is that different than a normal one, like normal sex? Oh, oh, sorry. Okay, so yeah. the question is: so how is cyber sex different to normal sex? Yeah. Very insightful questions when people uh, uh, 
ask those questions. You think you wonder where they're coming from. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, actually, quite literally, you know, in that case. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know whether we could. I don't know whether we're, I apologise. I, I don't know whether we're recreating in, in in cyberspace what we experience and feel in the real world. I'm not. That's not an area of uh, research expertise of mine. I think it's. I think it's. It's the. You know. It's the adrenaline. It's the dopamine. It's. The, but it's over and over and over again. And it's like um, random scheduling. You don't know, so you just keep looking for more and more and more. And that's why it's problematic. That. I mean, actually, in the reality, like. 95% of men use porn, so the idea that no one uses porn, I mean, there just isn't anyone. They've done studies where they tried to look at university students' porn use. They couldn't find anybody to make up the control group, basically. <laughs> so, you know, and the, and the average usage time is 12 minutes, so it's a means to an end, and that's completely fine. <laughs> The, the what problem they doing for the other 11 and a half? <laughs> Searching for the right channel. But the, but the main... The, the problem when it escalates is that, you know, you just create a situation where it's, it is an addiction. Mm. It is... Act, well, it's, I mean, addiction is the wrong word, but it's just this drive, and you have to keep escalating and escalating. And actually, the um, channels like Google, anybody who looks at porn, as I do professionally... You, you, I mean, it, it, it is absolutely horrible now, and the number of really, really young images of really young people, and it's that escalation because they're constantly searching for a newer and a newer thrill, yeah. and it drives people, so they're led into areas that they wouldn't necessarily no, choose that's, to. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. I remember seeing a, a, a paper a couple of years ago that, that said exactly that, that you... Um, get satiated essentially by seeing the same kind of porn and then you need to find something else to stimulate you and you end up in places that you would never otherwise have gone um, and certainly would never be able to go in the real world I mean that kind of sets this expectational difference um, that, can, that can actually be quite harmful A question over there Hi, uh, um, getting away from porn for a moment. Um, sorry, guys. <laughs> but a, a general question at the beginning, you were talking about the difference between online and you know, in-person meetings. And I'm a vet, so I was reading a study looking at bonobos and chimps and, and comparing their levels of pro-sociality. And I thought it was very interesting that bonobos displayed much more pro-social behavior, just almost as a species difference. So just looking at, at human beings, you know, is there something about us? And could you go into a bit more detail? Why is it that these physical contacts with other people um, sex is obviously a part of it but there must be more to it that meeting someone in person does for us that say meeting someone online doesn't well I mean just like pro-social behaviour just touch in itself I mean the physiological response to touch is, in- is incredible you know it, 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 it regulates your heartbeat it, it creates just all sorts of benefits your immune system and now in, uh, in Sweden and in the States, they're, they're setting up hugging facilities. You know, instead of brothels, you just go and literally get hugged because we, so, so many of us don't have that physical contact with other people. Um, mothers have it with their children, you know, in a relationship where you're still touching. <laughs> you'll have it with your partner. But so many people are physically alone and physically isolated, and it is really damaging, I think. 
Yeah, and just in terms of even without hugging, the social connectedness, right? So even we know that we know that introverts even enjoy being around other people more than being on their own, except when they want to choose to be on their own. What basically makes an introvert different from an extrovert is that what you who you who and if anyone you want to be around when you need to recharge, right? So extroverts just kind of like being around people constantly. Introverts need time away to be with themselves but but they are also happier when they're with other people they like choosing who those other people are more a bit more than extroverts do but so even introverts basically kind of like being with people we're kind of socially connected creatures and i, and I guess we would have i mean i don't really you get into a lot of evolutionary arguments in lots of discussions and particularly around sex and relationships and they're not they're not always helpful because they're alice in wonderland stories that can never be falsified and, and also, evolution sometimes kind of makes mistakes, right? So we have perturbations that lead us off in directions that, 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 we, that, we, that aren't logical. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they, they could be quite difficult. But notwithstanding those challenges to evolutionary arguments, you know, we, we, we would have evolved, I guess, as a species that would have enjoyed the company and contact of other people, not least within our own tribes, in order to be able to connect and fight off other tribes that might come and try to take our territory and our food. <laughs> Over there. So we move on to marriage. Yeah. Um, what's the reasoning behind why some people need more physical contact than others? Um, what's the history behind that? Uh, I mean, I, uh, if evolutionary arguments are to be believed, you would expect a distribution across populations. Um, I, 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 people, you know, for, for you, you would expect some people to be more risk-taking than others. Uh, it, would, it would be evolutionally disadvantageous if we were to all take lots of risks, or, not, or for all of us not to. Um, so you would expect distributions across any um, condition for which we could observe data. And I guess connectedness and touch and contact would be would would, would also fall into that category too. Okay, we're going to move on to um, marriage and um, cohabitation. Um, and uh, how social policies influence people's relationships. So, in terms of encouraging marriage or discouraging divorce or... Can I show a slide? Yeah. I've got one slide that's not there. <laughs> this, is why I don't use, this is why I don't use slides when I teach. And also the fact I can't be bothered to produce them. Um, there we go. Now... <clears throat> This is, this is a slide. Laura Kudrener, who's sitting in the front row there, seems to be uh, present at my talks and also produce, produce all my slides, i.e. the one I used the other evening with the debate with David Willits and now this one. So this is from the same US data that I talked about the other evening. These are uh, Americans. That's the first thing to say. It's an American time use study. Um, it's about 15,000 people over the course of about three or four years, uh, different people each year. Um, and, they, and, they, and they basically uh, construct a diary of, and, they, and they say what they're doing, who they're with, and they say how happy they are. And they also say, they also say how sad they are. They also uh, rate adjectives of sadness and, and pain and, and, and misery, and, and, and we put those together under the misery. I'm going to talk about the misery of marriage rather than the happiness of marriage. Right? I've spent a lot of time talking about happiness, but talking about misery. So um, what Laura's done is basically just classify people. These are correlations, right? So we all the caveats that an academic would add to these data. There's no, nothing causal in this, right? It's correlational data. Um, these are just the categories of people by how miserable they report being in their activities of life. From... Never married, married with us. Well, I'll come to that in a second. Widow, divorced, and separated. What I think is so. So the, so the higher the bar, the worse it is. This is this is not a happiness graph. This is a misery graph, right? So you want to be you want to be low down. You want low numbers on that on that slide. 
What I think is super interesting about that slide is that whether you're happy when you're married depends on whether your spouse is present when you're asked the questions about how happy you are. Um, When your spouse is in the room, that's what the interviewers were asked to code. They were asked to say whether the spouse was present. When when your spouse is in the room, you are very happy. You you have low levels of misery. Once they leave the room, well, I mean, who knows? You can be more honest, maybe. Who knows? Um, And you are doing no better. And in fact, you're doing worse than people who have never married. So... Um, maybe the key to happiness if you get married is to make sure they're always there and they tell you that you are happy. Except that you have to factor in the fact that we have a 42% divorce rate. So yeah, so they end up in the that... divorced and separated exactly. group afterwards. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, as an expected utility calculation, I guess, if you were thinking about your life in, in an uncertain world, making judgments about what to do, given the costs, the psychological and sometimes financial costs of... Um, divorce and separation um, uh, you probably wouldn't marry <sighs> but that, that, that isn't working is it? I mean actually the marriage rate is falling massively and the number of people who are cohabiting has increased massively yeah. but cohabiting relationships are much less stable and the problem with that is you have this kind of inertia where people slide into having children and yet if you have a child in a cohabiting relationship by the time that child is five you're significantly less likely to be together so that doesn't work either yeah i mean we have to be careful because of course there's selection effects into the type of people that will marry and then be more likely to bring you know children up together so that's a that's an important caveat to add to that i mean i think the children i mean can we leave the children to one side for the moment because i think there are some interesting conversations had about policy implications for the contracts that partners might have with one another in relation to bringing up children. But certainly in terms of, in terms of you know, the, the, the benefits that come from... I mean, really, really the, the punchline is that if you're a man, you should probably marry. You should, actually, you should marry. You're going to live longer, earn more money, and stop being stupid. Um, <laughs> if, if you're a woman... It's not clear where the benefits are, really. Um, you're looking after an idiot, really. That's, uh, that's what happens. And some of the, the, the health, and certainly in the health, um, in the health data, uh, the women that live, live, live the longest report the lowest uh, levels of, of adverse health events are women that have never married and never had children. So. Um. Um, yeah, my mind's got a blank. <laughs> It is um, the case, though, that, you know, we're not very good at not marrying or not living with people. We are, we pair bonds whether we want to or not. And so we do need to think about ways of improving the outcomes for everybody because the reality is women who come out of a marriage, you know, are significantly worse off. There is this idea that um, women who divorce go walk away with fantastic settlements, but they don't. You know, their, they, their <clears throat> drop in income is, is uh, minus about 30% after a divorce, where for men it's up 13%. So, you know, maybe women would be better off not marrying 
because yeah, well, that the outcome when they divorce and there's you know one in two couples end up divorcing is much much worse for women. It is well, they're certainly psychologically better off um, from breakdown. I mean, men are ten times as likely to commit suicide, for example, from a divorce than women are. Um, women can kind of do all right without us, really. Um, from a policy question, though, it was interesting because when I was um, in the the cabinet office, um, one of the first challenges that the time Steve Hilton wanted us to look at was relationships um, uh, to see whether there were nudges that policymakers could make that would help people make better decisions about who to be with them for how long and, and, and uh, because of the recognition of the, of the social and economic and, and psychological costs of bad relationships. And so it's a, very, it's a very worthy area for policy to be interested in. There's no reason why policymakers shouldn't be interested in it. The challenge is knowing what to do. Mm. Um, and, and so when I spoke to a lot of personality researchers around that time, you know, like, could, you, could, I, could I pick a partner based on my personality and knowing something about theirs, right? Well, the answer was, don't marry someone who's neurotic. Which is not very helpful if you're neurotic. Um, apart from that, it's pretty random really actually whether a marriage stays together or not at least as I understood at the time so it's kind of we could we could intervene we could try to do things in policy making but actually um potentially with the best one in the world sometimes make things worse rather than better so uh, we need to be I think very cautious and careful about laying in with our boots of intervention I do um, I do think there's an awful lot to be said around education and you know, we have only just introduced mandatory sex education in secondary schools. I mean, that is outrageous. And the fact that um, psychology and self-awareness and how to have a relationship, really, really fundamentally basic (coughs) issues to human well-being are not touched on at all um, in terms of teaching children means that, you know, we are all completely naive by the time we start actually having relationships of our own. Completely. And I mean, some of the evidence on sex education, particularly as children will be uh, you know, exposed to porn much earlier than they would otherwise have been in ways that they would never have otherwise have seen, uh, is, to, is to start early, um, yeah. is, to, is to intervene with you know, language, for example, using normal natural language with kids very early on. Um, so totally. Although uh, it's checks uh, and balances because as porn use has gone up, the teenage pregnancy rate has gone down. So, Well, there are... Well, but that's a really good... So there's a really... That's, that actually draws a nice, sharp distinction between some of the methods that are used in economics and psychology, right? So if you look at, if you, if you look at the question, does, does watching violent films make people more violent, right? Psychologists' approach to that question is to expose people to violent films and see what their behaviour looks like afterwards, and they act more violently. And it, but, but of course, of course, at the same time, whilst people are watching violent films, they're not being violent. Right. So so substantively and the, the, the evidence on this is quite mixed, but it, it does seem to conclude that actually watching violent films is a substitute for acting violently in the real world. Um, and it could be the same um, in the case of, um, you know, people engaging with porn um, is that they're, they're watching porn and they're not getting pregnant or getting someone else pregnant. We've got some questions. <clears throat> there. Uh, how does it work in terms of uh, different sexual orientations and different, not just the gender binary of men and women, but also, for example, for transgender, transgender people? How do all these variables yeah. come into play? So it's a good question. I mean, we unfortunately don't have very much good data on um, different populations and different sexual orientations. We do have some data in some of the big national studies 
um, of same-sex relationships. And, and actually, I think that they're the happiest uh, population of all. I think um, in civil, when it was the case before, before gay marriage, um, those in civil partnerships reported being happier. But really interestingly, I think I can recall, I think I, am, I, am I right in saying this, Kate? That actually that's only in London. Um, that if you're, if you're in a civil partnership in Northern Ireland, you're less happy than if you're in a civil partnership in London, which speaks to potentially the tolerance and the you know, degree to which you're accepted um, as being in that partnership in different regions in the country. So there'd be some interesting effects by area and by other variables that would affect that too. So I, I used Tinder a couple of years ago, and I was chatting to this girl. It's always a couple of years ago. <laughs> but this was last night. She was she was gorgeous, this girl. Yeah, anyway, where, where are you? No, no, long see, story I, short, I can't see you. Where, where are you? Oh, it, it turned out she was a chatbot, and um, <laughs> and so I think if you think about the future, then why does companionship and relationships need to be with? Humans, why, why couldn't this companionship, especially in old, you know, old age, and if you're isolated, why can't that be a robot, and why can't that be um, automated and technology-based? Yeah, I don't know, Susie. Um, well, the trouble is that 59% of people over 75 are still not online, so it's really more about accessibility and also about the fact that um, they. People who are older now use technology to sort of keep in touch with people they know already, but not make new relationships. But I mean, I don't see why you know robots and um, anything that facilitates care. But I think that lecture is happening in a different theatre right now. Um, would be phenomenal. Would be amazing. Yeah, and also, I mean, I obviously said about you know the the paradox of choice earlier, but the paradox of choice will only apply to those people that have choice. So um, Tinder and other dating apps, there are other da- dating apps available. I suppose we have to probably say that, don't we, for, for advertising reasons? Um, uh, yeah, are you know very good for people that that would have otherwise been very socially awkward in the kinds of environments that I had to, you know, chat people up in when I was young, going up to people in bars and being rejected constantly, um, you know, is something that, that, uh, that, is a few, that you don't have to do anymore. Um, you can actually be in the same bar as someone, presumably, and then swipe left or right and meet them. <clears throat> so um, so, there, so there, are, there are population groups for whom those kind of interactions would be beneficial. And for those that can't find relationships at all at, at any stage of life, for whatever reason, um, virtual interactions would probably be better than none at all. So, um, should we should we talk about children? I know it's a bit of a jump from. We can talk about children. Um, so, all of these issues, which are about adult <coughs> relationships, the 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 big quandary is how they impact on young people. Um, you know, we're clearly uh, cr- creating a a society where sort of serial commitment seems to be the order of the day, but we know that for children, that level of change, so every additional relationship that their parent has does more damage to the child. A child who comes out of a marriage and sustains a relationship with both parents, maybe lives with a mum, sees a dad regularly, you know, there's no evidence that, that that child you know, is noticeably damaged by that situation. But when that child is then brought into step-family relationships those relationships are more fragile in themselves and, and the effect on the child 
is cumulatively negative. Yes, I mean, that's important. there's a couple of important points there. First is that to get divorced is in itself not a bad thing for children. So that's, that's the first thing to say. I mean, there's a, there's a narrative around that, that that potentially suggested it is. But high-conflict relationships um, are especially damaging for children when those couples stay together. So, um, so it's important that we understand that. Um, and I think it was... I was sort of touching on it a, a bit earlier. I think we, 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 we seem to be fixated on the relationship that exists between mother and father or same-sex marriages, and not on the contract, and I don't mean that in any very cold, rational sense, but that exists between parent and child. Um, and, 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 and it seems to me there's something, we're, we're getting something misaligned there, that we're paying too much attention to whether the, the husband and wife, mother and father, or two fathers or whatever, stay together, and, and not enough attention to the relationships that they have with their children should they separate. And that seems to me to be where policy, policy can do anything, seems to me that that's where policymakers could think about the nudges and sometimes the shoves that might make it better for all concerned by, by having the long-term relationships with their parents. And that's fundamentally, as you've said, Susie, that's fundamentally what matters, is the relationship between the parents and the children and not necessarily even at all the relationship that exists between the parents themselves. Um, I, just, I brought some <coughs> stats on this because I think it's really important. So there are 11 million children under the age of 18 in the UK. 3 million children are growing up predominantly with their mothers <clears throat> and 1 in 10 men in the UK never ever see their children and another 11% only see their kids a few times a year. Which is shocking, isn't it? Yeah, and it does. It speaks to that point that we're missing, that we're you know, doing something wrong in establishing the relationships that would... Exist. Yeah, I'm just going to restate what I said, between, between the parents and their children, um, as opposed to between the parents themselves. Does anyone have any questions on this? Yeah, or comments, observations? about the relationship of communities rather than just trying to make uh, uh, um, uh, two people and yeah. 2.5 kids or whatever it is. I mean, uh, there used to be communities and you got community support. You weren't expected to get everything from one bloody person. No, you bloody weren't. <laughs> um, and, that, and, and, and absolutely right. I mean, we, it's very interesting. So if you take the kibbutz system in Israel, that was essentially designed to do that. It was a you know, kind of community of people that would bring up families and children together. What they, what, they, what they would hope that would happen was that the children on the kibbutzes would, would, would date and mate and have children and they'd all be in the communities. But what happened was that that actually didn't happen, is that they went with people from other kibbutzes. Because when you're growing up, you get socialised out of sexual attraction. And that's what happens to your siblings, by the way. The reason, you, the reason you're so repulsed about having sex with your siblings is because you grew up with them. When, if you didn't grow up with them and you meet them again you know, when you're 20 or sometime thereafter, there's a huge amount of genetic sexual attraction. Um, and, and that often happens with, par- with parents that haven't been around children either. So, so, um, so the socialisation was intended to kind of do something of that kind. It just, did, it just didn't work in the way that was intended in that particular environment but the, it is again it comes back to lots of lots of things about expectations i mean the idea that we would get something from bloody one person is just is completely absurd um and and also maybe indeed the, the idea that we would get the the support required to bring up our children just from one person is absurd um 
I mean, we, of course, there are, there are ways in which we could design environments that would make it more likely that we had community involvement, I guess. I mean, we could, we could, we could try to encourage some of the things that we talked about at the start, uh, if that were possible, more uh, sort of wider support networks of people that would volunteer and help. Because um, it's actually, you know, it, it, the, the, the biggest challenge, of course, is that people who have clusters of deprivation um, that are not just economically disadvantaged, they're socially isolated, um, they, they're, they're kind of all of the things that come together that makes it really hard to do things in an organic way without the intervention of the state. I think there's, you know, there is, there's ideas being tried out. <coughs> so I think the idea of having kids in homes with elderly people so you're putting younger children who who need support and education in with older people who want company those um those ideas are ideas that we should really be experimenting with on much bigger scales um the idea of of banked care the idea of um creating communities where you take you know the, the main issue of course is you know people want to work we haven't got we haven't got childcare systems in place Every single business that has over a certain number of employees should have an in in office crash. All, all of those structural things yeah. that could be changed would help. They would. I just want to also say though that we need to really also get away from the narrative that, that there's something that you tick off the box of being a grown up by both getting married and having children. Um, it was a bit of similarly in the discussion on higher education the other day. It's not a it's not a tick tick box narrative. I mean, it's entirely entirely fine and uh, actually actually very good um, particularly in terms of environmental damage for people not to have children um, and um, we but we still kind of look on particularly women um, that haven't married now children you would have seen maybe in the Guardian today the piece on Jennifer Aniston you know poor Jennifer who can't have a relationship bless her she's not married yet and she hasn't had children you know how awful um, which is never said about men in the similar position. So uh, there's, a, there's a huge amount that can be done by policymaking, of course, but also just by changing narratives around the expectations about the kinds of lives that we should lead. Can you wait for the, for the mic? Sorry, thanks. <clears throat> Evolutionists would probably disagree with that. Is that correct? Uh, well, do we, want, do we want to get into some evolution? Yeah. Okay, you want to get into evolution. All right, okay, let's... All right, then, we're, we're, we're going to have to do this, Susie. Right, so put your, put, put, just your, pick a hand and look at the, in, the length of your index finger to the, to the length of your... What's the, what's the other one? The, point, the, the ring finger. Um, now, that, that, that ratio, that's your 2D, 4D ratio, is a measure of in vitro testosterone. So if your ring finger is longer than your pointy finger... The, or the, the bigger that is relative to your pointy finger, the more testosterone you're exposed to in the womb. And what that, that correlates, that ratio correlates very highly with a, a whole range of behaviours, risk-taking, time preference, and also sexual, soci, uh, sociosexual behaviours and attitudes. And what the latest evolutionary theories suggest is that men and women sort into bimodal distribution, basically. the two types of men and women, not just the normal... normal. So you basically... And thank you very much, Joel, for um, telling me about this paper. So um, is that men... Right, so let's put it very bluntly. You're either a cad or a dad, right? Now, men sort into cads and dads about 57, 43, right? So the more cads than dads. 
women sort into proportion, let's call them mothers and lovers. All right. Um, 53, 47 in favour of mothers over lovers. Roughly half and half. So what the latest evolutionary theory is then asking is, because that basically means that women are likely to cheat too, right? (laughs) In ways that previous evolutionary theory was a very basic characterisation of men cheat, women don't. We can't identify our offspring, they can, so they don't need to. That was the basic, very glib theories that were talked about before. Now it's, oh, women have sex with other men too. Where's the evolutionary advantage in that? And that is in the genetic, in, in having genetically, genetically, div, uh, um, arrange, genetically diverse offspring. So essentially, what you'd want to do if you were if you were a woman in it from an evolutionary advantage point of view is to find yourself a dad, have a kid with him, then go and have a kid with the cad, and get the dad to bring up the cad's kid. <laughs> right? Because what? Because what? Then you've got the genetically diverse offspring, and you've got the dad who's willing to invest resources, time, effort and money in his child plus someone else's too. So that's the evolutionary argument. I think it's pretty damn interesting because it, it means, I think it means that our stories around how men cheat and women don't might be questioned by some evolutionary basis that would suggest otherwise. But of course, as we were discussing before, the evolution is not just, it's just, it's just one part. It speaks to the earlier question. It's just one part of who we are and what we do, there are narratives and also our ability to overlay reason and logic and ration over an evolutionary argument. So it doesn't mean we're predisposed to do those things, but check out your wife's or husband's hands and then, they'll, then you'll know. <laughs> I think um, morally we're all um, very much against infidelity. So in America, it's 91% of people think it's... Uh, a really terrible thing, and in the UK, 63% of men and 70% of women think it's fundamentally wrong. And actually, the rates are quite low, so only about 4% um, of people who are currently in a committed relationship are cheating. But it is a secret behaviour, so who's going to tell a researcher? Yeah, that's the... I mean, the real problem in, of course, all of this research is that we nearly always rely on (laughs) self-report, and uh, the self-report data are are often quite problematic. Has anyone got any questions? One here. Do you want to wait for the mic? Thanks. So do you think, like, polyamorous relationships would be kind of um, beneficial to those who feel lonely um, in the sense that it's a kind of consensual romantic relationship between many partners and they all know yes yes absolutely i mean i don't i i the problem that we have in so many domains of life is that we think what works for us or what we think ought to work for us ought to work for other people too and and it's a fundamental mistake of the human condition i mean who cares I mean, as long as people are living lives that are consistent with their authentic selves that make them happy, as long as people are not doing harm to other people, that's fundamentally important, right? We're not damaging other people by what we do, particularly, you know, maybe the, the you know, offspring that we might have. If, we're, if, if that's beneficial to them, why would anyone, why would anyone have a problem with it? It's, 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 always, it's been a long-term challenge for me to understand why anybody would really care how anybody else lived their lives their life if it causes no one else any harm 
other than I, I might be offended. I mean, what, what sort of harm is that? <laughs> There's a question over here. What role do you think that architects and, and uh, builders and planners can have in alleviating loneliness? For example, I live in a block of flats and I'm on the third floor and my key fob only allows me up to that third floor. I cannot meet anybody else in the rest of my block and the building is built in such a way that children are not allowed to play and that any, you know, there's nowhere to sit and to meet other people. So there's all these people living. Most of us are working from home. I'm a single mother as well. You know, meeting people actually becomes very difficult because the way that the building is built and the landscaping around it. And I noticed that, you know, in times past, much more consideration was given by councils and builders as to how uh, people could interact in the block that they're in. But that seems to have gone out of the window with the commercial um, the commercialism of building now. I think you, you actually touched on this in, in your book. I, th I think you're absolutely right, and I think architects have a, have a huge responsibility and, and an opportunity in terms of what <coughs> could be done to, to create the opportunity. If, if we created environments where it made community possible, people would commune, and that just isn't happening. And you talk about that, about how when, we, when you create the opportunity for something, people will behave in a certain way. All you have to do is, you know, you put put those things in place and people change. Yeah, the physical spaces are hugely significant. They're part of our environment, literally, that, 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 that drive a huge uh, part of what we do. But also sometimes we might need to kind of give people a bit more of a nudge than they might otherwise want in order to interact. There was a nice study where people were um, commuters, were incentivised to talk to strangers. They hated the idea of doing this. Um, they were paid to talk to people. Um, and reported being much happier as a result of doing so. They didn't ask how the people that were being talked at or to felt, uh, which is how sometimes I feel on my commute when I'm talking at people. Uh, I sometimes reflect on afterwards that they might not have enjoyed that quite so much as I did. Um, but, um, but the idea that we kind of, you know, sometimes are actually... And, and of course, loneliness is very um, addictive. You know, once you spend... Anyone who spent any time on their own will know that the more time you spend on your own, the, the harder it is to to go out and speak to people. So kind of sometimes we might need interventions that give us that little bit of a kick to do things. I think we're, we're almost done. Yeah, Can I take we a couple are. of questions? Just, okay, so one there, Two one there, one there. My question is on finance. Do you have any comments on financial mixing versus financial independence and earning between couples, like earning parity or men, women earning more than each other? Yeah, I don't know what the happiness data say on income and uh, income distributions in relationships. Um, I'm not sure that we have any. I mean, I think um, it, from an economist's perspective, it's a household, it's a household production function. You, you basically would um, maximise and optimise based upon the uh, abilities and capabilities of the people within that household. So um, one thing we do know is that um, the happiness gap matters in the relationship, right? So you're more likely to to split up if one of you is, well, this is kind of obvious, but if one of you is happy and the other one's not. But it's often predicated by the woman being less happy than the man. Um, and, and I would imagine maybe sometimes in our, still in our patriarchal society, that we probably, um, a lot of men would feel uncomfortable with their wife earning more than them. Um, Women who so. earn more are more likely to file for divorce as well. <laughs> Well, so she wants to get out. <laughs> she wants to get well, away from him. Financial independence <laughs> yeah. creates an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. There's another question here. 
Hi, uh, my question is more of a hypothetical question. In recent flight appointment of Minister of Happiness in the United Arab Emirates, mm. if the UK would have a similar role, what would be the first three decisions that they should make to promote subjective well-being and happiness here? Good question. Um, Dario, have you released our summative question for the coursework yet? <laughs> <laughs> That's really extraordinary. For those that have <laughs> taken my happiness course at the LSE, the summative question that we're asking for the coursework is pretty much that question. So <laughs> I'm kind of a bit, a bit concerned that there might have been a leak. Uh, <laughs> a leak in this question. The reason I'm asking that question of my students is that I want to know the fucking answer. (laughs) 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 Have you got an answer? I think because for me, I I moved here a few years ago and I just realised I come from a collectivist culture where I just talk with people talk and communicate with strangers and the first thing I was told here when you're the tube never look into someone they would think they would think you're crazy so it's like I realize how isolated everyone is and it's actually looked down upon if you start having a conversation with a stranger so the people should start talking with strangers all the they time. They should talk to strangers more often that's something that we could all do when we leave this room is to go outside and uh, find someone that's going to think we're mad from going up to them and uh, talking to them. On that note, I think we're going to end. It's a nice note to end on. Thank you um, so much for, for coming. And you can uh, buy Paul's fantastic book, Happiness by Design, on the way out. And uh, don't forget to tweet. And um, thank you very much for coming.